0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking
1: a Mai Tai. What do you have, Dell? I am drinking a grape soju, and on this week's episode, we are looking at the Immortal Restaurant Killings. The Eight Immortal Restaurant was a Chinese restaurant in Macau, then a Portuguese colony. The modest dining establishment connected to the Eight Immortals Hotel was owned and operated by Child Link, who had moved his business from a stand into a formal restaurant in the 1960s. The restaurant was a financial success, but Child and his wife were noted to be heavy gamblers. The family consisted of Zhao Ling, his wife Ching, his five children, Natalia, Stefani, Joanna, Antonio, and Zoe. Ching's mother, Ching Rong, Ching's aunt, Ching LeZen, and an older cousin. The family was last seen alive by a delivery man on the afternoon of August 4th, 1985. That evening, after the restaurant had closed, Wong entered the establishment and demanded that the family pay 30,000 padakas of the debt that they owed. Wong grew increasingly agitated when Zhang refused to turn over ownership of the restaurant. Eventually, Hong became physically aggressive, taking Jong Sung hostage and forcing the other eight family members to bind and gag each other. Wong later claimed that one family member broke free and started to scream, causing him to stab her in the neck with a broken bottle he had brandished as a weapon. He then proceeded to kill all nine family members, either by strangulation or with the bottle. He briefly left the restaurant to lure one of Xing's sisters inside, where he killed her as well. Wong dismembered the bodies over the course of eight hours and wrapped them in plastic trash bags, which he then dumped into the ocean or threw into dumpsters. Afterwards, he climbed the restaurant, recovered some money and a safe key from Zing's corpse and spent the night at their residence. The next morning, the delivery man found the restaurant locked, with a note on the door stating it would be closed for three days. The delivery man then visited the residence where Wong answered the door and claimed the family had taken a trip to the mainland, which is mainland China.
0: On August 8, 1985, a swimmer found eight pieces of human lives in Hawksaw Beach. It was originally theorized that the body parts came from a group of illegal immigrants from the mainland who had been eaten by sharks, but an examination of the limbs revealed that precise cuts had been used to sever them. This finding prompted a police investigation and a search for potential missing persons. Over the next few days, forensic evidence determined that the limbs belonged to at least four separate people. A further, three body parts were found on local beaches over the following week. These findings generated significant interest in the press, and several theories were raised as to what had happened. Eventually, Macau police traced the severed limbs to the Zhang family, who had been reported missing by relatives. Meanwhile, Huang reopened and continued to operate the restaurant. This was considered unusual but not unwarranted as he was known to associate with the family and was in possession of the restaurant's ownership documents. He also began collecting rent from the family's former home. Police grew suspicious of Huang and searched his bank holdings, finding documents belonging to Zhang and student IDs belonging to his children. Huang attempted to flee for the mainland, but was captured on September 28, 1986. He was convicted of 10 counts of murder on October 2nd, 1986. Huang's arrest and the fact that he had continued to run the restaurant after dismembering its former owners resulted in the urban legend that he had baked his victims into pork buns. The final body parts to be linked to the murders were found in a trash dump in 1989. Huang was attacked in prison by another inmate on the day of his conviction. He was sent to a hospital to convalesce, where he attempted to escape without success. On October 6, Huang confessed and detailed to investigators how and why he had killed the Zhang family. His second and fatal suicide attempt took place on December 4, 1986, when he managed to cut his wrist with a bottle cap. Huang left a suicide note and a letter to a local newspaper explaining his actions, stating in his note that his suicide was not due to his crimes, but rather to escape his chronic asthma. After his death, What was left of his fingerprints linked him to the 1973 murder in Hong Kong.
1: The recovered remains of the family were later cremated and the ashes scattered off the coast of Macau by relatives. After Wong's arrest, the restaurant was immediately closed and seized by police. It was resold by early 1987 and has seen different owners in recent years. Today, the former restaurants and the apartments above it are a part of the Baxson Hotel. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Immortal 8 restaurant killings?
0: Just absolutely heinous. And it's so hard to believe that someone could kill an entire family what 10 people, including children. It blows my mind at how cruel people can be. And again, all of our money. You know, money is the root of all evil. How many cases have we talked about related to money? How many cases have you heard related to money, families, people being killed? It's ridiculous. This man, Huang, sounds very bizarre to me. I do find it very strange, like we noted, that he went and reopened the restaurant. Even if it was in his possession, I feel like that makes him look suspicious, him telling the delivery person that the family was away and yes, he associated with them, but would they trust him to open the restaurant or did he work at the restaurant just seems bizarre to me. It's crazy that it took several years for all of the body parts to be found and linked together. It's definitely like a, I feel like kind of an unprecedented case that in my opinion I haven't heard of many other cases like this for several reasons and then to hear that he took his own life is really frustrating and to say that it was because of his asthma I don't believe that but again I I feel like he was a an unusual man to say the least uh I would say unwell for sure just hard to believe that this happened what are your thoughts
1: yeah, I agree with you. He was definitely unwell. And just one of the creepiest people that we've seen just going through and killing an entire family. The fact that for one of the family members, they weren't there at the restaurant at the time. So he had them come to the restaurant so that he could kill them. It's just another layer of Awfulness and yeah, the fact that he thought it would be okay to open up the restaurant. One of the things that ended up being suspicious is the fact that he had those ownership documents because it was still in the family's name, so it's not like they had signed it over to him or anything, he just had it so that someone was taking a quick glance, they wouldn't really notice that anything was a foul with this. You know, it's definitely a sad situation that they didn't get the full justice in this case because he did take himself out. And yeah, I agree with you. It's weird that he blamed it on asthma, but I think it's just another sign of how demented he was because he wanted to make sure that people didn't believe that it was because of what he did which would be a typical thing for people to think like, oh, you feel so awful, you're doing this. But no, he was just like, no, 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 don't think it was because I'm this awful mass murderer. It's because of asthma. It's just ridiculous. And again, just another sign of how awful an individual he was. And again, the fact that this was all over money, once again, another case where people decide in their own twisted way that money is more important than people's lives, which it's absolutely not. So unfortunately, the family was affected by a vice that hurts many families throughout the world, and that is gambling addiction. So we're going to take a dive into gambling and problem gambling specifically. So gambling is the wagering of something of value or the stakes on a random event with the intent of winning something else of value where instances of strategy are discounted. So it's not a game of skill. Gambling thus requires three elements to be present. Consideration, which is an amount wagered. Risk, which is a level of chance. And a prize, which is typically money. The outcome of the wager is often immediate such as a single roll of a dice, a spin of a roulette wheel, or a horse crossing the finish line. But longer time frames are also common, allowing wagers on the outcome of future sports contests or even an entire sports season. Gambling is a major international commercial activity, with the legal gambling market totaling an estimated $335 billion in 2019. Gambling dates back to at least the Paleolithic period before written history. In Mesopotamia, the earliest six-sided dice dated to about 3000 BCE. However, they were based on dating back thousands of years earlier. In China, gambling houses were widespread in the first millennium BCE, and betting on fighting animals were common. The first known casino, the Ridotto, was started operating in 1638 in Venice, Italy.
0: Many jurisdictions, local as well as national, either ban gambling or heavily control it by licensing the vendors. Such regulation generally leads to gambling tourism and illegal gambling in the areas where it is not allowed. The involvement of governments through regulation and taxation has led to a close connection between many governments and gambling organizations, where legal gambling provides significant government revenue, such as in Monaco and Macau, China. Most jurisdictions that allow gambling require participants to be above a certain age. In some jurisdictions, the gambling age differs depending on the type of gambling. For example, in many American states, one must be over 21 to enter a casino, but may buy a lottery ticket after turning 18. While almost any game can be played for money and any game typically played for money can also be played just for fun, some games are generally offered in a casino setting. Studies show that though many people participate in gambling as a form of recreation or to earn an income, gambling, like any behavior involving variation in brain chemistry, can become a behavioral addiction. Behavioral addiction can occur with all the negative consequences person's life, though without necessarily the physical issues faced by people who compulsively engage in drug or alcohol abuse. Problem gambling has multiple symptoms. Gamblers often play again to try to win back money they have lost, and some gamble to relieve feelings of helplessness and anxiety.
1: The DSM-5 has since reclassified pathological gambling as gambling disorder and has listed the disorder under substance-related and addictive disorders rather than impulse control disorders. This is due to the symptomology of the disorder resembling an addiction, not dissimilar to that of a substance use disorder. And again, we're going to talk in more detail about how this is diagnosed, but note that we are not mental health professionals. To be diagnosed, an individual must have at least four of the following symptoms in 12 months. Needs to gamble with increasing amounts of money to achieve the desired excitement, is restless or irritable when attempting to cut down or stop gambling, has made repeated unsuccessful efforts to control, cut back, or stop gambling, is often preoccupied with gambling, having persistent thoughts of reliving past gambling experience, handicapping, or planning the next venture, thinking of ways to get money with which to gamble. Often gambles when feeling distressed, helpless, guilty, anxious, depressed. After losing money, gambling often returns another day to get even, which is also called chasing one's losses. Lies to conceal the extent of involvement with gambling has jeopardized or lost a significant relationship, job, education, or career opportunity because of gambling relies on others to provide money to relieve desperate financial situations caused by gambling. If not treated problem, gambling may cause severe or lasting effects on an individual's life. This includes relationship-related issues, problems with money, including bankruptcy, legal problems, including imprisonment, health problems, and suicide, including suicidal thoughts and attempts. Most treatments for problem gambling involves counseling, step-based programs, self-help, peer support, medication, or a combination of these. However, no one treatment is considered to be the most effective. And in the United States, no medications have been approved for the treatment of pathological gambling by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Jenny, what are your thoughts on gambling and the grip that it often has on people's lives?
0: I thought hearing about the history of gambling that we just gave was pretty interesting. I guess I never really gave like much thought to how long it had been around. But to hear, you know, it's basically been around since like humanity has been around is really crazy. It's really sad to see people be taken over with gambling addiction no one in my family, I think is a gambling addict, but there's many people in my family that like to go to the casino, like to do bingo, which I think some people don't really think about as gambling and lottery tickets, like lottery tickets are, were a big thing in my family growing up. Like everybody always gave them to each other as presents, stocking stuffers. It was a very common thing in my family. I know it's pretty common in a lot of families and just to see it over take people is really really sad to see how much people give up whether it's their time or whether it is like money and property for gambling is really sad and I mean it's designed to be I think addictive in a way you want people to come back I'm not a gambler by any means but you know like I've gone to Las Vegas if you're in Atlantic City you know certain places I think it is fun to To gamble, I like the slot machines personally. I think it's fun, and I definitely understand why people do get addicted to it because when you win something, it is really fun and it can be hard to, you know, stop and get your money and not just like put it back in to try to get that high again. Also, with slot machines, I guess like modern slot machines, it is just so like there's nothing involved, which to me makes it a little boring. But I guess it is just such mindless, like, let's just press these buttons over and over and over again. And people might not realize how much money they're spending, which is probably a little bit of why they're made like that, too, if we're being honest. What are your thoughts on all that?
1: I agree with you. I'm not the biggest gambler, but people in my family love it. It's definitely one of those things of, I'm the type where I can put $20 in a slot machine and be there for hours, just <laughs> like pressing the same thing, getting the free drinks and kind of calling it a day at that. It's not something that really gives me that kind of adrenaline feeling of, which is probably a good thing, right? But it's also something where I definitely, understand the attraction of it. You know, you have a thing where you can put in what's not a lot of money, right? Five, ten dollars and come up with hundreds of dollars. So it's definitely not a surprise to me that it's something that people get into and really like. And I would never judge someone for liking to gamble or anything like that. But of course, just like with anything that gives you an adrenaline rush, it can be problematic. And, you know, many people, when they're looking at different addictions, they tend to cite gambling as one of the more destructive ones, because it does have that same kind of up and down cycle as other things. But it also comes with the just financial ruin of a lot of people. And it's not something that is easy to get out of. I think that a lot of times when people think of the behavioral addictions, they have a sense like lessening them or saying, well, it's not as bad as being addicted to alcohol or drugs or something like that. But I definitely think that's not the way the to frame it and not the way to really think about it. Because again, depending on how long you've been addicted, Mm. how strong the addiction is, how resistant to help your addiction is, it can be something that really ruins your life and makes it harder for you to get out of that cycle. One of the things that really makes me think of this was when it, the chasing one's losses part of it, because that's something that we all tend to do, right? We all tend to look at a loss or maybe something that we didn't do well at or that we might have failed at. And we want to correct that, right? We want to go back and try to do better. But with everything, it becomes an issue, especially when it's related to money and especially just the inherent chance built into gambling means that you can have a situation where one day you're up, you're making tons of money, tons of fun, tons of attention. And the next day you are out of your rent money because you used it on poker, roulette, blackjack, the slot machines, you know, pick your gambling apparatus. I do agree that the history of gambling is really interesting. And it's just something that seems to be kind of foundational to who people are as people. It's one of those things where people are always looking of how modern people are connected to our ancestors. And gambling just seems to be one of those ways. It tends to be very intrinsically human to want to see what we can get for less.
0: Next, we'll look at other mass murders that have taken place at restaurants. First is the Brown's Chicken Massacre. The Brown's Chicken Massacre was a mass murder that occurred on January 8, 1993 in Palatine, Illinois, when two robbers shot and killed seven employees at a Brown's Chicken fast food restaurant. On January 8, 1993, seven people were shot and killed at the Brown's Chicken and Pasta at 168 West Northfield Highway in Palatine. The victims included the owners Richard and Lynn Ellenfelt and five employees, Guadalupe Maldonado, Michael C. Castro, Rico L. Solis, Thomas Menz, and Marcus Nelson. The assailants stole between $1,800 and $1,900 from the restaurant, equivalent to $3,748 in 2022. Two of Ellen Felt's daughters were scheduled to be at the restaurant that night, but were not present at the time of the killing. A third daughter, Jennifer, was later elected to the Wisconsin State Senate. Michael Castro's parents called the police a couple hours after closing time. Later, Guadalupe Maldonado's wife also called the police concerned that her husband did not return home from work and that his car was still in the apparently closed Brown's Chicken parking lot. When officers arrived at the building, they spotted the rear employee's door open. Inside, they found the seven bodies, some face down, some face up, in a cooler and a walk-in refrigerator. When Palatine police found the bodies, it was more than five and a half hours after the 9 p.m. closing. The case remained unsolved for nearly nine years until one of the assailants was implicated by his girlfriend in 2002. Police used DNA samples from the murder scene to match one of the suspects, Juan Luna. Luna was put on trial in 2007 found guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder, and sentenced to life imprisonment. James Dagorski, the other assailant, was found guilty in 2009 on all seven counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. Luna and Dagorski are imprisoned at the Stateville Correctional Center.
1: The next case is that of the Luby shooting. The Luby shooting, also known as the Luby's Massacre, was a mass shooting that took place on October sixteenth, 1991, at a Luby's cafeteria in Colleen, Texas. On October sixteenth, 1991, 35-year-old George Hennard, an unemployed former merchant seaman, drove a blue 1987 Ford Ranger pickup truck through the plate glass front windows of a Luby's cafeteria in Texas at 1239 p.m. October 16th was boss's day and the cafeteria was unusually crowded with around 150 people. He then began firing from inside the truck while holding a Glock 17 and a Ruger P89 pistol. The first victim was veterinarian Michael Griffith. He then exited the truck and yelled, quote, all women of Colleen and in are vipers. This is what you've done to me and my family. This is what Bell County did to me. This is my payback day, end quote. He then opened fire on the patrons and staff with both pistols. Hennard then circled around the cafeteria, selectively picking his victims. He said, quote, you bitch, end quote, to a woman before fatally shooting her. He saw another woman hiding underneath a bench near the serving line and said, quote unquote, hiding from me, bitch, before shooting her dead. He then approached Steve Ernst, who was hiding underneath a table before shooting him. He rolled over. Hertz rolled over, holding his stomach. The shooter then approached a woman with a crying baby. He barked at the woman saying, quote, you with the baby, get out before I change my mind, end quote. The woman ran out, holding the baby in her arms. After the woman left, Hanara shot Ernst's wife in the arm, which went clean through and instantly killed 70-year-old Venice Ellen Haneen. Ernst's mother-in-law. During a brief law in the shooting, Hanar approached the table of 28-year-old Tommy Vaughn in the rear of the cafeteria. Huddled on the floor beside a window, Vaughn threw himself through the window, creating an escape route for others. Dozens of people pushed, shoved, and knocked each other down as they made their escape. When police arrived a few minutes later, a third of the victims had managed to escape. Hanar reloaded at least three times before police arrived and engaged in a brief shootout. Wounded, he retreated to an area between the two bathrooms. People were hiding in these bathrooms and had blocked their doors. Police repeatedly ordered Hanara to surrender, but he refused, saying, quote, no, I'm going to kill more people, end quote. was shot twice more by police in the abdomen, having depleted ammunition, For one of his weapons and his injuries growing more severe, he fatally shot himself in the head with a fatal with a final bullet. He had shot and killed 23 people, 10 of them with single shots to the head at point blank range and wounded another 27.
0: Next, we'll look at the San Sedero McDonald's Massacre. The San Sidero McDonald's Massacre was an act of mass murder which occurred at a McDonald's restaurant in the San Sedero neighborhood of San Diego, California on July 18, 1984. The perpetrator was 41 year old James Huberty, who fatally shot 21 people and wounded 19 others before being killed by a police sniper approximately 77 minutes after he had first opened fire. At the time, the massacre was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in U.S. history, being surpassed seven years later by the Luby shooting. It remains the deadliest mass shooting in California's history. At approximately 3.56 p.m. on July 18th, Huberty drove his black Mercury Marquis sedan into the parking lot of the McDonald's restaurant on San Sidero Boulevard. In his possession were a 9mm Browning HP semi-automatic pistol, a 9mm Uzi carbine, a Winchester 1200 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, a box, and a cloth bag filled with hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each weapon. A total of 45 customers were present inside the restaurant. The first of many calls to emergency services were made shortly after 4 p.m., notifying police of the shooting of a child who had been taken to a post office on San Cedro Boulevard. The dispatcher mistakenly directed responding officers to another McDonald's two miles or three kilometers from the San Cedro Boulevard restaurant. Approximately 10 minutes after the first call had been placed to emergency services, police arrived at the correct McDonald's restaurant. The first officer on the scene, Miguel Rosario, rapidly determined the location and cause of the actual disturbance and relayed this information to the San Diego Police Department as Huberty fired at Rosario's patrol car. At 5.17pm, Huberty walked from the service counter toward the doorway close to the drive-in window of the restaurant, affording a 27-year-old police SWAT sniper named Charles Foster deployed to a strategic position on the roof of a post office directly opposite the restaurant, an unobstructed view of his body from the neck down through his telescopic sight. Foster fired a single round from a range of approximately 35 yards. The bullet entered Huberty’s chest, severed his aorta just beneath his heart and exited through his spine and sending Huberty sprawling backwards onto the floor directly in front of the service counter, killing him almost instantly. The entire incident had lasted for 77 minutes, during which time Huberty fired a minimum of 257 rounds.
1: Jenny, what are your thoughts on these other cases of restaurant massacres? It's just so
0: appalling to hear all of these. For the Brown's chicken massacre, it was less than $2000 and 7 people had to die because of that. It's there's like no words to even describe that the poor families people that were just living their life trying to get by trying to like make something of their lives it's just it makes me so mad it did kind of remind me of the burger chef murders and it's interesting I'm glad this was solved but it's interesting to me that so many of these kinds of murders like The Burger Chef murders are unsolved. The Las Cruces Bowling Alley murders are unsolved. The yogurt shop murders in Austin are unsolved. There's so many of these kind of uh, like robbery murders that are unsolved. And I wonder, I mean, I think there was definitely poor police work in the Burger Chef murders. But it's interesting that something in like a similar vein So many of these aren't solved. And like I said, I'm really glad that these were solved, even if it took almost a decade uh, for justice to be served. And then the Luby shooting, I had never heard of that. And it's just, it's so scary hearing about that and the McDonald's massacre. I think this man was obviously mentally unwell, both of them were. But to just blame these innocent people and have to take Your aggression out on these innocent people just makes my blood boil. And to see that, you know, this is still going on many years later, just appalling to hear that these people, they were just going about their day and then some asshole came in and killed them and traumatized how many more people. The San Cedro McDonald's massacre I was familiar with. And it's interesting to learn about the shooter because I think he did try to seek help for his mental state, but the California system, it kind of wronged him in that sense. I don't remember all the details, but I think maybe there was like a waiting list or something and he wasn't able to receive services. And then this ended up happening. And from what I remember, his wife was, she acted very bizarre and kind of noticed these warning signs and didn't really do anything about it just a horrible stories all around and you know how many people did we sit 20 we have 23 people we have eight or seven people there and then 21 people too that's ridiculous to hear all of these people died for absolutely no reason what are your thoughts
1: i agree with you yeah going back to the Brown's Chicken Massacre yeah it's definitely a thing where it is very much akin to the cases that you listed that haven't been solved and the only reason why this one was solved because someone came forward and offered evidence you know and then they were able to use DNA to link them to it and finally get justice but like you said it took over nine years, almost 10 years to get this justice. And I hope that happens for the other cases, though I am not holding my breath for that. When it comes to the Lubies and the McDonald's massacres, it just really is a sign of what can happen when mental illness and guns meet each other and people, instead of you know, seeking out services. And I know in the McDonald's case, there was some evidence that uh, he had tried to get on the waiting list. And then maybe I think it was like a week before or something like that, he had called, but got the voicemail or something like that. So he actually wasn't able to follow up and, you know, talk about how his mental state had diminished even more. But of course, it's definitely not an excuse for what he did A lot of times when I see cases like this, I'm just like, why didn't these people drive themselves to a hospital and let the hospital staff know what was going on versus killing over 50 people if we combine all these cases together more than that. When it comes to the Luby's case, it was one that I was less familiar with, but one that just, when you hear the things he was saying to people, just the level of, yes, mental illness, but also just rage against others, especially women, had a very incel vibe for me, and just a very, I don't care anymore. I am just going to try to kill as many women and anyone else that gets in my way because I am someone who is not able to control themselves and their actions. And when it comes to McDonald's one, his wife was very suspicious and it's weird to hear about the things that happened afterwards, because of course he did die at the scene. But besides the possible mental health implications, we haven't got much in the way of like the why. And I think that in any case, the why is very important. And it leaves this just open question mark on this, because if we don't know the why, it's very hard to put in place things that are going to prevent this from happening again.
0: That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Immortal 8 restaurant killings. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.